0: Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark. In this episode, I'm speaking with Mitch Taylor from the Longreach Direct Lending Fund. Keen listeners to the podcast and longtime listeners will recognize Mitch's name and his strategy uh, via our podcast that we've published way back in 2018 when our listenership was far smaller. And thank you, everyone, for your participation and listening and sharing it on. We really appreciate that. Uh, We talked to Mitch about that direct lending strategy, what the outlook for that strategy is with higher interest rates and higher inflation and how they're protecting against it and how the progress of the fund has been. Over the last 12 months, the fund has returned 8.74% and looks set to return slightly higher as rates have returned. Uh, have, have increased, I should say. Please remember that this podcast isn't designed, nor is it specific or general advice or advice of any form. People are very much encouraged to listen to the disclaimer at the podcast, but people are also encouraged to keep their feedback coming. We love receiving the emails giving us the tips on who the leading minds in wealth management are. You can email me at david.clark at codacapital.com. Thank you, and enjoy the episode. Mitch Taylor, welcome back to Inside the Rope. Thank you very much for having me. Mitch, I looked at the records, and it was 2018, episode 15, when we had you last on. Right at the start of the podcast, you are an early supporter, uh, one of the great podcasts, but I dare say we probably didn't have a fraction of the listeners that we do today, so you've got a much bigger audience, but many of them won't remember back to 2018, nor will they have listened to it, so I think it'd be a great way to kick off, if you could uh, introduce the listeners to who they're hearing from today.
1: Thank you very much. Um, My name is Mitch Taylor. I'm a co-founder at Longreach Credit Investors, Um, the investment manager of the Longreach Direct Lending Fund. Um, I've had a career in credit in Australia and in the US markets, Um, 16 years with Macquarie Group uh, in a couple couple of jurisdictions and a number of different divisions, but always in and around credit and extending credit to counterparties, uh, to businesses, not not retail credit. Had a couple of years working also with Corder in and around um, insolvency and advisory work uh, and then been with uh, long-reach credit investors since we established the firm back in late 2017.
0: And I think off memory, you may have been at Macquarie extending credit to businesses through the GFC.
1: Yeah, well, more... Towards the beginning of the GFC, we, we were I was working in the uh, the physical gas business in in the US and deciding who was a valid counterparty to extend credit to and who wasn't um, in a extremely volatile time. But the more interesting seat was on the distressed credit trading desk, uh, which I joined early 2019 in New York, and that that was um, it was just such a um, an opportunity and a privilege to sit on that desk at that time um, and taught me lessons that have really, I think, been entrenched into the DNA and culture of long-reach credit investors about how to think about credit, um, how to think about credit if it becomes distressed uh, and how to behave to um, really protect capital. Um, Some of those lessons really are clear to Understand, if you read the information memorandum for the fund, which is, you know, we have some flexibility, but we write senior loans, right, being that there's nobody that ranks ahead of us um, or, or the loans that we write to, um, to the borrowers. And, you know, people sort of can get attracted over time through economic cycles to write mezzanine or unsecured loans to reduce return. Um, And sitting on a distressed credit trading desk in 2009 in the US gives you a pretty solid reminder that you won't forget for the rest of your career that outcomes can be pretty poor for subordinated or unsecured creditors and definitely for equity. And you see over and over again that senior lenders tend to do pretty well even in um, truly sort of catastrophic financial market conditions. And Mitch, apart
0: from the great track record you've had
1: and the experience
0: that you've had, you, you, you look the part, I have to say, and of course we're not, uh, I've got visual, it's only audio medium podcast here, and the fact that you've got the 80s style uh, calculator watch and the HP 12C to boot goes to record that you're a detailed fashion, a detailed uh, orientated numbers person, um, which is a bit of a sideline.
1: It won't be long before you have cameras in here as well, if you really become a superstar podcaster. Well,
0: we, we have looked at the, 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 some of the platforms. Um, tell us a little bit about the Direct Lending Fund. What, what, what is it? What does it seek to do? What, it's, what are its objectives and what has been its performance?
1: Yep, certainly. Look, Quite simply, the fund um, writes senior loans to Australian and some New Zealand Corporate borrowers. Um, loan size is a minimum of two million dollars. Um, we can write facilities larger than that, but we, the fund and you know, and if we listened back to the two thousand and eighteen version of this, of this podcast, we would have been very much pointing to the fact that at the lower end of company size um, in Australia, the banks have for a long time perhaps neglected borrowers in extending them credit, even highly creditworthy borrowers. If it couldn't point to tangible assets as as
0: collateral, I. so if you've got the company turning over ten million dollars and it wants to buy the business next door for ten million dollars, unless the directors want to give up the, the the deeds
1: to their house and sign them over as collateral, they're going to struggle to get the debt. Yeah, and and a lot of your um, a lot of your clients, right, that invest with Coda really resonate with this um, narrative, which was how hard and difficult they might have found it in the. In the 90s or noughties or later of getting genuine business credit in Australia. Um, so, yeah, we don't just write loans against equipment and um, we don't write loans at all against property. We have um, effectively zero real estate exposure in the fund. We write loans against the enterprise value and the cash flows of the businesses we lend to. This is just, there's nothing sort of new or unique in, in its simplest form. It's very old fashioned business banking. Um, and we've found that and pr- and proven now almost uh, over almost five years, that there's an excess return available for lending on that basis on pretty um, pretty vanilla sort of leverage multiples uh, that are available on behalf of investors. So generally, you know the gross margin on the portfolio has been pretty steady over, the, um, over the, the fund's life at, at approximately 12%, which sounds high, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and Yeah, the first question any listener is going to ask yeah. is, well, gee, who are these people
0: that have to pay 12% and really they can't be that good a company or organisation if they have to pay 12 Why can't they just go to the bank?
1: Yeah. And if that company has $4 million in earnings and it wants to borrow 12 to buy a competitor... If it doesn't have property to back that up, or or plant and equipment to borrow against, it will generally be difficult. There will also be personal guarantees involved if you do, to go through through a bank bank avenue, um and and generally, um you know the sort of more traditional forms of finance have relied on looking backwards, mm-hmm. and so if you're putting two businesses together, it can sometimes, um push the envelope in terms of um, maybe a major bank's sort of analytical appetite, but more the um, the bandwidth of the relationship manager there, um, where they might be managing 20, 30, 40, 50 different files. Um, at Longreach, for, as an example, you know, we have a, a rule of no more than six per member of, of the credit team. So we have the time to think about it and do the analysis and lend to a company based on its current um, and, and if you're putting two businesses together, pro forma earnings um, at a, um, again, at a, at a reasonably conservative um, multiple, um, as in multiple of, of earnings. And the companies that are still keen to pay that sort of rate are the ones that are absolutely, entirely, zero doubt convinced of the enterprise value that they're creating by doing, by accessing that capital. Um, they can see that they can buy that business, they can raise prices, they can realize synergies and their business will move from being worth $30 million today to $80 million in two years once they've bettered this down. We don't need to believe in the $80 million valuation. We just need to know that the $12 million we've landed against $4 million of EBITDA is, is, is comfortably covered. And so... You know, that means that we're not banking thousands of companies, right? Um, It's a very... (laughs) What we've done since, again, since the last time that that we were speaking in this environment is in some circumstances really meaningful and we've been very, very active. Um, Maybe one of the most active amongst amongst our peers in terms of number of loans, which we can... uh, Well, I'll, I'll mention it. It's been 54 different corporates that we've lent money to over almost five years. Uh, $856 million in total capital deployed. Uh, And of those 54 borrowers, we've had 29 full repayments come back. Uh, The average sort of time that capital is invested on those repayments is 22 months. And the IRR on that has been 12.6%. That's a lot of activity for a reasonably small team. Um, a growing team, but a, but a small team, but it's absolutely tiny compared to the size of the Australian business banking market, right? Which is about a trillion dollars. So you only have to get a few companies who are in growth mode, who really think that the cost of debt capital at 12% is very, very cheap compared to giving away equity, right? What they really value is the equity in their business. They think they're undervalued. And they'd rather take some non-dilutive capital that has a has a high interest rate on it, um, so that they can go and and execute their their transaction. And there's you know there's some there's a, a few names in the in the portfolio or, or the past portfolio that we sort of raise your eyebrows and go, oh wow, you know I didn't realise that, uh, let's say Aussie Broadband, mm-hmm. right, um, was borrowing from us at those sort of rates in um, into and a little bit past the the IPO, right? But it tells you that sometimes you can see really high growth, very valuable companies being frustrated by not being able to find the right debt provider who can just understand their business and get it done in a no fuss fashion. And what have you learned over those years since you set
0: the fund up and the strategy? up? What would you do differently?
1: Uh, Be less worried in COVID. Mm -hmm. um, Because that was a terrifying time right like in as just sort of you know watching the prime minister shut down industries you know going down a bullet point list was was sickening um now you know the the level of of government spending to keep those industries alive was was unknown but was was immense um but what i learned through that was that I like the asset class more than I thought. Okay, so we don't lend to property. Um, we don't lend to, to pure mining companies. We lend to generally to, you know, probably our t- typical borrower is, is some sort of a professional services firm. or, a, um, And so it has a revenue line. It'll have a gross profit line. Um, it'll have OPEX and, and, a, and a net profit at the bottom. And what we saw through COVID was... That if we asked all of those borrowers, is there any fat in your business in January 2020, they would have said, no, no, no. We run lean. There's no fat whatsoever. We couldn't make any cuts here. We run lean. And we saw, saw all of them remove 5 to 10% of headcount in March 2020. Right? And we saw that it had very little impact on revenue. And we had this completely inverse um, outcome by the end of 2020 where the loan portfolio was far more profitable than anyone could have predicted. And it actually saw a a pretty significant decrease in our loan portfolio. We had three companies go to IPO. Um, We had a a number sort of that raised capital to repay us. Some of us just repaid us out of free cash flow. And so it it was a really powerful reminder that when you're lending to an operating business, um, it has a lot of levers to pull if something doesn't go to plan. Right? Unlike, uh, again, if you're lending against against property, the sort of the property's worth what the property's worth, you can move along the x-axis and wait, long, wait for evaluation for it to change. But it's difficult to change sort of the economics of that property today, but you can do that with an operating business and you can do it almost immediately. Um, so that's, you know, I've been wrong a hundred times over the last five years, but that's, that was one that I didn't properly appreciate of, of the resilience of lending to businesses because sometimes people will like saying oh I like like lending against something tangible something I can touch
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, the inflexibility of that asset um, compared to an operating business can you know sometimes mean that people don't don't realize maybe how robust um, operating businesses can be
0: and, and Mitch, you strike me as someone, and and through my experience over the last few years in dealing with you, um, that plans for the worst, hopes for the best. And your experience in administration and your level of detail and rigour, I know that some of the companies that you lend against, you go um, to, the, to the extent of looking at their business interruption insurance and making sure, um, you know, if something... Terrible happens to the business that everything is still protected and your lenders are still protected. Can you talk a little bit about your experience over the last couple of years where you have had some things go sideways, and you know the, the the forethought and the experiences put you in good stead?
1: Yeah, this goes all the way back to you know what we were speaking about previously when I was lucky enough to have have time on on that distressed credit trading desk. It made me um, just hyper aware of the importance of people. You know, the sort of the term in credit is sort of back-end credit people, right? Those that have worked either in insolvency or around distressed credit or special situations. I um, strongly believe that if you don't have that experience, um, uh, oh, maybe let me soften it, um, it's kind of mandatory for being part of our team. Um, I think it makes you a better lender, both just understanding emotionally, the impact of, uh, of, a, of a loan underperforming because uh, you're talking about real people and real livelihoods um, and so there is an, an emotional sort of burden to that but also you know what are the options to you how does the insolvency system work what sort of levers can you pull before that and how do you make sure you don't destroy value here right because if something doesn't go to plan for us we look at it we say how do we protect the value of the of the company and I think you, that only comes naturally if you have had that sort of background. So we're up to now a team of eight people in the, in the credit team, six in Sydney, two in Melbourne. And the, most are from either an, a formal insolvency background mm-hmm. uh, or a distressed credit um, in, in other jurisdictions, primarily in the in the UK, because it's just not as. Um, so hopefully they've seen a few other car crashes on other watches and and they know what to look out for. Well, that's it, and I'm giving away my the answer to my interview question, but it's mm. tell me about you. You know the worst thing that's that's happened to you, and 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 what did you learn out of it? Um, and the only sort of incorrect answer is oh well nothing, everything's gone swimmingly so far, right? Yeah, sure. Um, so that's that's who we have and that's, that's the collective mindset at the, at the firm. Um, so yeah, look, when something doesn't go to plan, we sort of start, start breaking it out saying, well, is this a temporary thing? Does it require more capital? Yes or no. Do we still have faith in the management team? Mm -hmm. Right. Because if something external has happened to the company and the management team has a good plan, then, All else being equal, if we agree with that plan, we will back it. Um, If we've lost confidence in the management team, it becomes a much more um, uh, pointed sort of conversation and and behaviour from us. So there is really a a spectrum, right? Like we had when COVID hit, we had two companies who asked for additional funding Mm -hmm. out of, I think we had 30 at the time, um... And one of them was mid capital raise, so that was that was fair enough. And then the other one we thought didn't need the money, but they were petrified and 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 thought thought that they did. But on both of them, we sort of had to go back to first principles and say, does this make sense to advance another you know two or four million dollars in, into these um, into these companies? And that, and that decision can be can be yes or no. And if it's no, then you'd better have a plan. Um, on how to how to recover and, and, and recoup the capital. But it's always about protecting the operating business, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so that can be as simple back in when we write the loans of doing things like writing the loan into a holding company, not the operating company, so that you can enforce your security at the holding company and therefore control the operating company without there being any formal insolvency event at the operating company, which can be very distracting and value destructive. Um, So yeah, we also just tend to behave more like a private equity investor than a lender um, in terms of giving advice and support that people would be surprised by as a lender because we recognise that our source of repayment is the value of the company that we're lending to. And so once we extend the loan, we become very, very, very active and supportive. We get Reporting monthly from each borrower in the portfolio, we go through that um, on a cycle weekly as a team every week. So we watch these positions very, very closely. And if we see a way that we might be able to help improve performance, either through an introduction or a suggestion um, that they get some get some advice or meet this corporate advisor, um, then we do it because we... <sighs> it's not entirely altruistic. We, we and our, ben- our uh, investors benefit from, um, from that pretty unusual level of proactivity. And Mitch, what does the portfolio look like at the moment? So the, uh, the loan portfolio has $430 million of loans today in the Long Reach Direct Lending Fund. The fund has a net asset value of $474 million. So of that $430 million of portfolio, that's spread across 25 separate borrowers. So average loan size, 17, seven million. Um, spread of, of industries, but not much sort of exposure to, um, well, as I said, zero property exposure, um, all to operating businesses and um, all of those bar one are Australian-based and the other is, is New Zealand. Um, primarily, you know, professional services, firms um that are asset light but are highly valuable. The the book is is really broken into two products. Um, two-thirds of the lending is just cash flow loans to um to operating companies. One-third is what we call a borrowing-based product, which is um you know perhaps easier for some people to understand in terms of drawing a parallel line between the the lending and the collateral, um, which is where we, in those borrowing-based loans, we lend against a pool of easily identifiable and um, and easy-to-liquidate assets, right? It might be inventory or receivables or an underlying loan book. Uh, so it's um, it's sort of settled at that level of two-thirds cash flow loans, one-third borrowing-based loans. And am I right in thinking the largest loan in the portfolio
0: is approximately 7%? Yes, that's, that's and, right. And do you have limits around... Uh, diversification and how large uh, a percentage of the portfolio it can
1: represent yeah we, we um, in fact we've got our next meeting on this um, in a couple of days we have a portfolio construction committee um, that's made up of the investment um, the investment committee that, that assesses each and every loan but quarterly uh, we look at the diversification of the of the portfolio. Um, we have um, guidelines um, on the um, on the portfolio but no hard dollar limits. Um, but it's something that's assessed pretty, pretty constantly.
0: And are there any sectors or areas of the economy that you won't lend to or types of companies?
1: Yeah. So we would always, you know, we sort of think about the principles that we like, and then that can tell you which, which sectors we won't lend to. So I've already named property. We don't have an edge there. Um, and a management team can't really do anything if the price goes down on their asset class. Similarly, um, oil and gas and, um, mining, uh, areas that we think have commodity price risk that is difficult. You know, you can partially manage through hedging, but is, is, is difficult and a company can sort of face some distress through, through no fault of the, of the management team. So we stay away from those. And then really from then on, all of the decisions we've made at investment committee level have been assuming a recessionary environment. And so, what that leads to is we like companies generally that have a recurring style of revenue, right? Um, that not necessarily has, has to be a software as a service business that has contracted cash flows for each of their clients for the next five years. could be a company that sells thousands of, of, um, of its product every day and is a, is a consumer staple. Um, but staying away from companies that are reliant on winning large tenders where their revenue can drop very quickly, or can go to zero if they're not successful in in competing uh, for business, um, because yeah, that can turn into a problem quickly, and we don't like being faced with sort of quick moving problems on the on the portfolio. Um, the other thing is, you know, we tend to stay away from um, discretionary consumer um, retail businesses. Um, there has to be something um, you know, genuinely attractive about the sector that a retailer is operating in, in order for us to um, to provide credit to that, that sort of borrower. And then we're really trying to look for borrowers that have strong gross margins, right? So with all of that said, it's I find it really unlikely that we would lend to a construction company that bids for big jobs, right, and wants to, you know, win a job to build the next hotel or toll road or, or whatever it is, because that cash, that revenue is lumpy, um, you've always got to replace their pipeline of work. The margins are low, and if you get it wrong, the margins can be can be negative. Um, so they're the sort of front of mind um, companies and sectors that we stay away from. We'll look at, at anything else. But The first loan that we wrote was, you know, a pretty good um, example of the sort of company we're looking for, which is a the company that uh, that processes all of the recycling for the nor- northern suburbs up to the central coast in in Sydney, that had reasonably long dated council contracts in place, and um, and kind of the definition of a of a boring business. So we really try and find boring businesses that are looking for capital to grow, and um, yeah, we've been successful doing that a little bit over fifty times now. And Mitch, how do you
0: protect against inflation? Everybody's talking about inflation. They're seeing the effects of it, wondering when it's going to roll over. Um, how should the investor or potential investors uh, in this space think about the effects of inflation and how do you deal with it?
1: Yes, so primarily relevant to manufacturing businesses and um, and it really comes down to the selection of the loan, right? Was there a, a strong gross profit margin in the, in the business and is it making a product that has genuine demand from its customers and from its clients? If those two things are true, you might see suppression um, of gross margin and a lower gross profit for a period of time, like you know, a quarter as they take some time to pass through price increases through to their um, through to their distribution network or their, or their customers or clients. Um, which is which is fine, but if you elected to fund a company that has a single-digit gross margin, and their costs go up by as much as they're going up here, um, then that becomes more difficult. So coming back to the principles of assuming that um, that there was going to be a recession um, back on every lending decision that we made um, back to back to day one sort of meant that we haven't had borrowers that have had that really, really tight gross margin that meant that then they were into negative cash flow territory because their cost of goods sold increased. But a lot of our companies also don't have cogs, right? they don't have um, manufacturing costs to pass through. They might be a, a pure professional services firm. So you know, the only form of inflation really is represented by salary increase pressure. Um, but again, it really comes about down to the selection of the of the loan and and strong gross margin in the first place is the most effective buff, buffer against. And inflation. When and when you're writing those loans, are they fixed rates or variable? Everything we've done, oh, sorry, everything except for one loan uh, that we've done has been fixed rate. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would assume the loans that have been
0: written in the last three or four months have been at significantly higher rates than they were at the start of the of the book.
1: Yes, we've we really saw a change in mid-2022, a clearly identifiable change where equity markets, predominantly private equity, um, became more expensive for the companies that we were speaking to. And instead of just saying, well, I don't know, I'm getting a great valuation for the equity. I might go and do that instead of taking a, a loan from us. Um, we're coming back and saying we'd like to borrow because the valuation I'm getting this time, compared to when I last raised for growth in 2019 or or 2021, uh, it's 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 more expensive, it's more dilutive, and we'd like to we'd like to take the debt route. And us and all of our peers have all seen the same thing, where the product has become significantly um, more. Uh, more in vogue. There's much more demand for it because equity markets just aren't running as hot and people have to get a little bit more, dare I say, realistic on valuation. Um, More demand equals higher price and that's been the case. So yeah, anything that's repaying, now in the book we're replacing with higher rate um, loans and anything that matures... Is, has to go through a, a repricing exercise we don't offer anything longer than a three-year maturity mm-hmm. as i mentioned the average um the average duration on a loan for us has been um, always between 18 and 24 months it's coming out of 22 when we last did the calc and the running yield is roughly yeah. at the moment um well on the whole book it's at 12 but we're we're getting one to two percent higher all else being equal and probably a little bit lower on, on the, the leverage which we can use as a proxy for risk mm-hmm. uh, on the opportunities. So we haven't seen an opportunity set as attractive as right now um, since since we, we started the fund five years ago.
0: And Mitch, explain, you, you've you referenced a common lend to professional services and if you were to take a, you know, a mid-sized accounting firm or similar mm. or, or a legal firm, they don't tend to be asset rich or have a strong balance sheet. If, if everything goes wrong, what is your collateral or
1: what is, what is the way to get your money back uh, if in those circumstances? Yeah, it, it's, it's the value of that business to someone else, right? Like if you want to use the accounting um, example of, a, of an accounting firm, it's that what's that revenue line, mm-hmm. right? And what's that worth to another group that wants to plug that into their existing infrastructure uh, that doesn't have to carry the overheads of that, that business did, right? You don't need a CFO and... Mm-hmm. And certain other sort of head office company um, head office functions and and there's there's that sort of business sale value. Now let's follow that through for a second because I think people have seen sort of poor outcomes for banks in the past where they've gone, ah oh, well, this is undergoing some stress. Um, we're going to let the company appoint an administrator and run a sales process and everybody knows that's a distressed process and everybody knows that the bank uh, will not cannot but almost cannot own that company and that's what we said you know day one and back when um you know back when we 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 first met um coda and and you were our our first backer uh, um this is dating back to 2017 we said if that happens we will not be afraid to go and own that firm for 12 18 months and swap that debt into equity, own it, run it on a debt-free basis so that nobody looks at that in in a year or 18 months' time and looks at it as a distressed entity that has to sell today. And that's the sort of last resort in terms of recognising the proper value for a business. And I think that's one of the differentiators between us as a non-bank lender and versus a um, a major or, or really any regulated bank in, in Australia is you know they're worried about the the regulatory impacts and the capital impacts of doing that and we're simply deciding each and every day how do we protect the value of this business that we're lending to so that it covers the value of the, of the, um, the senior debt. So that, that's the sort of um, you know, plan, plan C that we'll do it if we have to so mm-hmm. that we're not selling into – we're not a distressed seller.
0: Yeah. Now, Mitch, how do you deal with the tension that you're a fund manager – who's built a wonderful business here. And uh, part of that remuneration, the value of that business is the size of the funds under management. And at the same time, um, growing very strongly and taking on lots of loans. And then the tension is, well, if I take on every loan that comes in the door, I may not end up with a great portfolio of good loans. How how do you guard
1: against just writing anything for growth's sake? Yeah, look, we've done that Um, and that was like not fun. Uh, and and what I'm referring to. And when you say you've done that, you mean you, you, you've selected hardly, you haven't just grown at any cost. What I'm I'm saying is we went through the uncomfortable period of being highly Mm underinvested and that, uh, that was a a level of, of, discomfort. Um, you know, including calls that we didn't want to make to, to your firm as such a major supporter of ours of saying, we can't take capital. Um, and we saw levels of cash in the funds that, that have been the biggest um, drawback in terms of return um, over the fund's existence has been being too long in cash. Mm-hmm. So I guess we've shown um, unequivocally that we will only pull the trigger on loans when we really like them and when they're ready to go and we've shown a level of discipline that was painful for us to be, um, under invested because we didn't have the opportunity set there and ready to go. It can be a pretty long process, you know, between finding a loan and, and actually settling it. And there's a bunch of conditions precedent that the borrower needs to meet. We need to document it. We need to take it through our DD, external due diligence, our investment committee process. Um, so it's not just finding, you know, can you find enough opportunities? It's how long, you know, when, when are they, when are they ready? But um, because of that shift that I mentioned before in, in financial market conditions that the product of, of senior debt from a non-bank lender has become more attractive this year has meant that cash has been down now for six months, I believe, right down at our target level at 10% of the fund's assets, which is what's driven the, the current returns. So on the, the Class A units over the last 12 months to January twenty three. Uh, has returned 8.74%, and the six-month return is is, quite robust at 4.54%, and that's just a function of there being less cash in the fund. But, yeah, we've shown that discipline. It was um, uncomfortable to do, but I would do it 100 times over rather than letting... low quality loans into the portfolio, coming back to the people that we select because we know how painful it is to manage underperforming positions from, um, from our, all of our collective prior, prior
0: experience. Well, congratulations because it's an easy thing to say, a hard thing to do. Mm. Uh, you'd be surprised at the number of managers that I talk to who say, Oh, look, you know, we're closing the fund off at five hundred million and then they get to six hundred and they say, Oh, we've got access to this new sector of the market. Mm. You know, we've got models that show we can manage a billion. They get to a billion and they say, Oh, we've got models that show we can manage two, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. So well done, congratulations, congratulations um, on the progress you've made. Um, since back in uh, 2018 when we first spoke, episode 15. um, You've you've come a long way. Well done. Uh, Thank you very much for joining us Inside the
1: Rope once again. Thank you again. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com.